I have given thousands of speeches and sermons in my lifetime of nearly 40 years in the ministry. I've done well more than 20-some thousand television programs, probably 30 or 40,000 radio programs. I have on an occasion moved audiences to the point of tears, but I have never moved an audience in the way Jesus Christ did when he began his first public ministry in his own hometown. If you have a Bible, I want you to turn to Luke 4 and verse 16, where it shows that he came to Nazareth, where he'd been brought up. And as his custom was, and we'll come back and expound this little by little as we go along, that shows that he was habitually going to come into this particular synagogue. He went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day. Jesus kept the Sabbath and said that we ought to do the same thing, and is called the Lord of the Sabbath day in Mark 2.27, and stood up for to read. Now, the keeper of the scroll, of course, had a very expensive, virtually priceless scroll. The scrolls were laboriously hand-copied on vellum, which was a kind of a treated, pounded, and very thin, almost transparent sheepskin and they were rolled off of one great big thick brass spool as they were rolled onto the other. They did not have books as we have today. They were under lock and key, and the keeper of the scrolls would bring them to a reader who would read a portion of scripture, and then it would be explained and expounded. It shows that this was something that had taken place many times previously, that he was recognized as something of a teacher. Remember that he had been in a temple from the age 12, talking to and confounding some of the Jewish doctors of the law. And there was delivered to him the scroll, word should read, not book, of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, quote, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. This is from Isaiah. And you can look in the margin. It will tell you the scripture that you can find this exact quotation in the Old Testament because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, not materially poor necessarily, but poor in spirit. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, not only physical healing, but recovering of sight to the spiritual who are blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, not only those in jail, but those who are under grievous burdens that are being placed upon their shoulders by other people, notably the Pharisees and religious leaders, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And he closed the book and gave it to the minister and sat down, and all the eyes of them in the synagogue were fastened upon him, wondering what was he going to say now. And he began to say unto them, This day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. Almost a pretentious, fantastic statement, wouldn't you say? saying that a portion of the Bible, the only Bible they knew was the Old Testament, was being fulfilled right then and there in that synagogue before their eyes. And all bear him witness, so they all listened, and wondered at the gracious words. His delivery was gracious, it was good, it was kind, it was interesting, scintillating. It was informative. He certainly had the audience's attention. So he was well-spoken which proceeded out of his mouth, and they said, they began to murmur behind their hands, they began to say to one to another, they began to think, and he was able to tell what was in man, as the Bible says, because he had God's Holy Spirit without measure, and he could perceive what was going on as a few turned to each other here and there in his audience. And they said, is not this Joseph's son? 
Joseph was a local builder, and his son had been with him in a business. Joseph may long since have died, maybe when Jesus was a young teenager, and Christ was now just barely over 30, and he had conducted that family business with the other members of the family for some years. He dealt in site preparation and the building of stone and timbered buildings as they did in that day. And so he was a contractor, not merely a carpenter with a handful of nails and a hammer, but he was a contractor that erected sheds and storage sheds and buildings and warehouses and houses and public buildings and the like. And he said unto them, You will surely say unto me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. Whatsoever we've heard done in Capernaum, where he had another home, if you'll read my book called The Real Jesus, the Bible says he was at home in Capernaum when they took the roof apart and let down a man to be healed from inside the building where he was. And that's all explained in that book as well as the Gospels. Whatsoever we have heard done in Capernaum, do also here in your country. And he said unto them, Verily I say unto you, No prophet is accepted in his own country. In another parallel account in the Gospels, or, he says, among his own family, his own kin. How absolutely true. The biggest bulwark, the biggest obstacle that I had to overcome before being able to come to and to accept the Bible as the Word of God, being able to accept many of what I assumed at that time were really weird, far-out, ridiculous doctrines, such as the Sabbath and the annual holy days and so on, was a gigantic problem, a big barrier. And that barrier's name was Herbert W. Armstrong. I called him Dad, because familiarity breeds contempt. And when you're 16, you know that your old man doesn't know anything. And you know that you know it all. And you are smart, and you are, when you've been smoking for two years, standing around with a little weed sticking out of your face in the corner candy store, looking like I just got back from the wars, 14, about 4 foot 11, unbelievable. Then you are given to understand that your dad is an old fogey. He's out of it. He's still spouting stuff about World War One. When in the world was that? I remember the antique old leggings that were dug out of a box by a neighborhood boy who lived across the corner, and his father had fought in World War One. And I thought, look at these musty old accoutrements of the World War One Army uniform of that time. And I heard my father talking about people like Cyrus McCormick and Henry Ford and uh, some of the Goulds and the Rockefellers and people back in that day when 4% of the nation's wealth was in the hand, or I should say about 90% of the nation's wealth was in the hands of about 4% of the population. And some of the people whom he really admired at that day back in Chicago and in New York. And to me, they were just out of it. They were old, old people. My father was 38 when I was born. So by the time I was 16, he was already up in his fifties, and I thought that he was a very old man, and I knew it all. So I not only began to really resent the religion, but I would run off to other churches around Eugene, Oregon. I went to the First Christian Church so I could play on their inner-city basketball team, which I did. I would go to the Lutheran Church with my little neighborhood boy, Delmer Jeske, and that was respectable because they had stained glass windows. They were inside the city limits. They had restrooms that flushed. Uh, we were outside the city limits. We had two outhouses out back, and we sat in little wooden pews that my father helped hammer together with his own hands. Furthermore, they kept the logical day that everybody else did, Sunday. And my dad kept Saturday for Sunday. 
and they had me trotting down to the assistant principal's office with a little handwritten note from my mother, please excuse Teddy this Thursday, it's a holy day of our church. They'd look at me and say, what kind of a church do you go to? A holy day on Thursday? Do you imagine some quaking little kid knowing that Mrs. Shuey had the rubber hose hidden away in the drawer, thinking I'm coming back as lacerated as the guy that took a caney in Singapore the other day? They said she could beat you where it wouldn't show, and I believed the story. And so here I was as a little kid, really worried about that kind of thing. I couldn't wait to get rid of it and to join the mainstream. I wanted to be in the swim. I didn't want to stand out. I wanted to be like other people. I wanted to be like what I learned later were my peers. I never knew the meaning of that word like that in English literature, but I found out it meant equals. Some of us think it means judges or juries, but it really means equals. And when I look at juries today, I'm not sure that's the correct application of the term even to this day, but nevertheless. So no prophet has any honor in his own country. I joined the Navy to get away from authority. My father was an autocrat. And I found out what authority was shortly after joining the Navy. But it wasn't until long after I got out of the Navy and was married and began to look into other church teachings and pick up literature from the Mary Baker Eddy reading room and read Mormon literature that was a reorganized church of Jesus Christ of the Latter-day Saints who lived next door to us over in Temple City who would give my wife literature. And I would read what some of these other people said. I picked up a booklet by a Dr. DeHaan, long since dead, but I think his son has succeeded him in later years, and I compared it one day with what the Bible said, just trying to prove my father wrong, and I began to embark on a study that shocked me as I went along. And I was having difficulty proving my father wrong about certain doctrinal subjects. And so I had to kind of back into the knowledge of God's Word over a great deal of resentment and rejection. I'm here to tell you I understand what Jesus meant when he said a prophet has no honor in his own country or among his own kin. I said to myself, why me? Why little Teddy Armstrong? I mean, I'm one human being out of all of these billions, and you're trying to tell me out there in the world that my dad is the only guy that has the truth of God? Ridiculous. What about the Catholic Church, the Methodist Church, the Baptist Church, the Lutheran Church, the Episcopalian Church, the Church of Christ, the First Christian Church? What about all of the others, including the two seed and the spirit fire baptized leaper and jumpers of 8th Street, Southside, Chicago? What about all of these other churches that you know are absolutely dignified, bonafide, a church organization with stained glass windows and choirs and pipe organs and respectable people going in there on a respectable day, listening to respectable sermons? My scripture, Paul, this morning is Luke 14, and so on for 12 minutes so they can get out in the golf course. And I wanted to be respectable. I didn't want to be a little kid who was a preacher's boy or some weirdo that kept Saturday for Sunday. Why do you suppose what happened here took place in such a short period of time that in the beginning when Jesus began to expound Isaiah, they wondered at the gracious words, but very shortly they began to come up with a tired, dog-eared, old, stupid human excuse. He's one of us, therefore he ain't wor worth nothing. Right? That's stupid, isn't it? You stop to think about it. The most terrible thing that the Jehovah's Witness organization could say about my father was, he used to be one of us. He never darkened the door of a single kingdom hall. He never studied with them. He never listened to them. He never was a member of their church. He didn't know anything about them except what he may have learned in later years by 
looking at some of their literature to find out what they believed, was never a part of the Jehovah's Witness organization, but because when he came to the Bible and found certain things out of the Bible, and they had come to the Bible and found certain things out of the Bible, although there were vast differences, there were a couple of three similarities about the immortality of the soul or whatever. So people made that assumption. So the worst thing they could say about him was, Herbert Armstrong used to be one of us, and we are yuck, therefore he is nobody. This doesn't make sense when you stop to think about it, does it? You would say, if you were really logical, that the most recommending thing you could say about somebody is, he used to be one of us. He's from our hometown. Aren't we proud? That's my papa over there. That's my daddy. Ain't I proud of him? No, that's not the way it works. Human nature is really stupid when familiarity breeds contempt. I tell you a truth. Now listen to this, and let's see if we can understand why that audience was moved the way they were in such a short period of time. I tell you the truth. Many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah. These are elderly people, gray-haired, stooped. They have lost their husband. They're probably living at or below the poverty level. They are widows. They are destitute. They are poor, oftentimes sick, and sometimes near death. When the heaven was shut up three years and six months, now they're really in trouble. We've got a three and one half year drought going on. These widows are starving to death, and many of them did, and they were Israelites. They were of the house of Israel and the house of Judah. They were home people. They were in that country that we now call Israel today, except it had different borders much larger than it does today. Many widows, not a few, many widows, not 10 or 15 or 20, thousands, were in the nation of Israel during the day of God's powerful minister, Elijah, who had the 400 prophets of Baal killed after the incredible, sensational miracle that you read of in 1 Kings 18 of the prophets of Baal leaping around and cutting themselves, and finally God, by a miracle, burning up the altar, the stones on the altar, and its sacrifice in the eyes of every one of them. And there was great famine throughout all the land. But unto none of them was Elijah sent, save unto Sarepta, that's a city of Sidon, the Zidonians were pagan Gentiles, unto a woman that was a widow. What is he saying? Well, let's read the next little statement. And many lepers, not a few, but many, not hundreds, maybe a few thousand. You know what leprosy is? It is a horrible, ugly, disfiguring disease where your flesh kind of turns a sickly, pallid white and actually begins to disintegrate. The tip of your nose falls off, your ears fall off, your fingertips fall off, your feet fall off. The skin actually begins to simply disintegrate from your body. It's a horrible, ugly disease of ugly, running reddish sores and a white, lifeless pallor to your skin where the circulation in the capillary system has actually quit functioning and you're just sort of dying on your feet. They used to assume many years ago that it was hideously contagious. It is not, we have found out now. It's a result of terrible diet and it's a result of terrible uncleanliness and, of course, wrong foods, but even then a lack of proper foods. Many lepers were in Israel in the day of Elisha the prophet, who followed along after Elijah. And none of them were cleansed. That's what your Savior, Jesus Christ, said to the people in that synagogue, saving Naaman, the Syrian, a Gentile, 
a Syrian, an Arab. He was cleansed. None of these other people, these lepers, male, female, child, were cleansed by God's prophet, by God's great mercy, by his healing act during the ministry of Elisha. And they in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath and rose up and thrust him out of the city. Now, I have moved audiences. I have never moved an audience to such absolute mindless anger. It turned into a frothing, raging mob, came straight at me. Let me see where my escape is here. There's a door. <laughs> Tackled me, took me to the ground, tried to take me to the top floor of the building and throw me off. Wouldn't you say that is quite a reaction from an audience who only moments before were saying, listen to these gracious words proceeding out of this young man's mouth. Isn't he a fine speaker? Well, what about that? Now, to begin, if you will go back and read what we read earlier, he is beginning to say, the Spirit of the Lord has sent me to do what you people in the pulpit have not been doing, isn't he? This day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. To what? Heal the brokenhearted, preach deliverance to the captives, the recovering of sight to them that are blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. That is pretty stinging when you seem to imply that through all of the years of the proud existence of that particular synagogue, and maybe they even had little uh, representations around that talked about its founder, and they certainly had word of mouth about its original old rabbis who had long since died. They had the proud tradition of how long that synagogue had been there, like a lot of old churches in our country, who will have a picture of the founder on the wall. But it was more than that. Those people, just like many Americans, believed that Israel was God's country. Israel was God's race. Israel was God's nation. Israel was the nation of the Torah, the law. It was the nation that anciently had had the tabernacle in the wilderness which contained the Ark of the Covenant. It had the original or the second copy after the original was broken, but the Ten Commandments, the rod of Aaron that became a snake. It had the little stone jar in which a sample of manna was contained. It had the book of the law, the Torah, in the side of the ark. It had the oracles. It had the divinely revealed calendar of God. It had all of the proud tradition of the fathers of the patriarchs, from Noah to Moses to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. It was the nation of Yahweh, of Jehovah, of Jah, of Eloah, of Elohim, the nation of Jehovah Zidkenu, of Jehovah Rophicah. It was the nation of Elijah and Elisha and all of the other prophets. It was the nation of Daniel. It was the nation of the Bible. God's country. And no place else was. Syria was not God's country. Sidon was not God's country. Now, we know, sitting here today, that we live in the United States of America. And I am in the middle of the Bible Belt. That prayer tower over there a few miles away ought to prove that. I am in the middle of the Bible Belt, and you can get on Sunday morning television and watch these guys, and this is the United States of America, and we sing a song, this is my country, but we sing a lot of songs about it being God's country. And we know that Iran is not, right? We know they are deceived. They're crazy Islamic people who would like to come in here with a machine gun and kill all of us and blast us into bloody ribbons because they hate Americans and they hate so-called nominal Christians. What about... China, 
Are they God's country? Well, you know better than that, no matter what your background is. Methodist, Baptist, Lutheran, Episcopalian, it matters not. You know that China is not God's country because you believe that a Christian country would be the only country which could qualify to be God's country. So Buddhism, Taoism, Shintoism, all the various other isms of China, such as ancestor worship, that cannot be God's country. What about Japan? Buddhism and the ultranationalistic little bent that they put on Buddhism called Soka Gakkai, which is their high priestly Shinto religion, uh, kind of an offshoot of Buddhism, but Shintoism. No, you would not say Japan is God's country. Well, then, where would you go for God's country? How about the animists of Africa? How about what's happening in Rwanda and Burundi? It's one thing to shoot a man with a rifle a thousand yards away. It's another to walk up to him with a machete and hack his arm off while he yet lives and to brutally hack 200,000 people to bits with machetes, which has happened within the last three weeks while you're living your comfortable life here in Oklahoma. People have died in unspeakable manner that you cannot even begin to believe and don't want to let your mind dwell upon, right? You're not going to say Burundi, Rwanda, Chad, Dahomey, Niger, Gold Coast. You're not going to say that Zambia, Tanzania, or any of those countries over there are God's country, are you? What about Russia? The Ukraine, Irkutsk, Azerbaijan, are those God's country? No, you're going to say they're all deceived. Those aren't God's people. Do you know that there are millions of people, Methodists, Baptists, Lutherans, Catholics, all, in the United States of America, who believe to the marrow of their bone that this is the greatest Christian country on the face of the earth? And we are, in so many ways, God's country. Now, you don't really want to beat that up too fine. You don't want to get that meal ground up too fine, because if you start saying, well, is California God's state more than Oklahoma? Then you've got an argument real quickly. Or you don't want to say, now, what about Mississippi in comparison with Alabama? Or what about the old Texas-Oklahoma controversy? Or what about Tulsa as opposed to Oklahoma City? Then you get down to a neighborhood, and then you really got problems and arguments as to which is God's country. I probably could get myself attacked and dragged to the top of a precipice or a parapet or a building if I went into a church, if they would allow me in, which they will not, if they would allow me in the pulpit, which they would not, and if I would start exactly as Jesus did and preach a similar sermon. Now, most of us don't even want to accept that. We don't want to accept the fact that if Jesus Christ of Nazareth, the real Jesus, the very original Jesus Christ of Nazareth, who was the Son of God, would come to this earth and would walk into a fundamentalist church and deliver a similar message that they might try to kill him. It's unacceptable to us. We can't, we can't deal with that. We can't believe that that would be true. Kill Christ? We all love Christ. Honk if you love Jesus. We've got all of our music, all the liturgy, all of the rituals. We've got all of our proud tradition. I mean, the most common face that you could pick out of any crowd you've seen in Christian bookstores, and he's sitting over the kitchen table of many a house where the long hair and the beatific view and the little shepherd's crook and a little lamb in one arm and a halo around his head. Jesus is the silent visitor, the silent participant in every meal in this house, etc. You can go buy those lovely little pictures at a Bible bookstore. They're there by the thousands. They're in Bibles. They're in Christian literature that you can buy for children to color and to paint and so on. And people think they could pick him out of the Super Bowl because he would be wearing a white robe, a shepherd's crook with a lamb in his arm and a halo around his head. 
and a neat little pointed beard and hair down to there, like any other hippie or heavy metal rock star. And they think they could pick him out of a crowd real easy. Well, they couldn't because Jesus disappeared in the midst of a crowd. In this case, here he was among people who were trying their best to kill him, but because they did wear the kind of a garment that had a cloak that could pull a hood over their face, and because they wore the same kind of clothing, and Jesus looked like an average, common, everyday Jew of his day. The Bible says that he has no form nor comeliness, that when we should see him, we should desire him. His disciples gathered around him, and in their haste, they were tripping over their robes and stumbling down the street, and somehow, in the dust and confusion, he got away because it was not going to be allowed of his Father in heaven that he be cut off from his ministry before it had really even begun. But you're looking at the Word of God, not Garner Ted Armstrong 14, verse 3. You're looking at the Word of God, the Bible. You need to deal with it. You need to understand it. And I would imagine many in this room have never read this passage and really focused in on why would they try to kill him when all he did was to say, that there were many of these widows, but unto none was sent Elijah, but one who was a Sidonian lady. And there were many lepers, but Elisha wasn't sent to but one who was a Syrian king. Now, if you can understand that they always felt every time they went to their meeting, Oh, isn't it marvelous how God is moving among us just now? And the blessings that have been poured out upon this congregation in the last month, we have seen the Spirit moving. We've seen what God is doing. Sound familiar? Tomorrow morning you get a good shot of that, good dose of it. Just get up in the morning and start tuning around the channels with that clicker you got in your hand. We call it a clicker. I don't know why it doesn't click, but it's an automatic uh, remote control. And you will see people, and they go to church, and they believe that's what's happening. And they're sitting there, and they are having a rollicking good time. And over in Burundi, they're hacking off arms and legs and heads. Is God over there? Well, you don't want to really ask a question like that. That's too tough. That's even worse than the big question that they ask on television. And the hospital down there, with all the people in agony and the people who were taken in with blood streaming out of a gunshot wound last night, 24,000 Americans who were shot down in our streets in one year only, by gunshot wounds, drive-by killings, gang killings. Most of the killings, of course, are inside the home, which is why homicide is homicide, because people are killing each other with everything from butcher knives to steel-toed boots, and not only guns. And you don't want to say that God is in the midst of that, so is God in the hospitals? Is God in the educational institutions? Is God in the Congress? Is he in the House of Representatives? Is he in the, ho in the White House? Does God preside in the Oval Office? Does God preside in the various industries in the United States? Is God watching over the 7-Eleven when some idiot goes in and slips some kind of a deadly poison beneath the cap of a milk bottle? But he sure is there, isn't he? Inside that church with all those good people who are having such a rollicking good time on Sunday morning. Surely it's marvelous how the Lord is moving mightily among us just now. That was exactly what those people were seeing, experiencing, believing, saying to themselves back during the days of Jesus Christ. And Christ comes along and says, no, this is not God's country. You turned your back on him a long time ago. And every generation since you have trampled his laws, 
You have rejected his word. You've thumbed your nose at him and spit in his face and kicked his shins and said, away with you. We want none of you. And so God has cooperated and he's turned his back and he's walked away in the universe and he has absolutely nothing to do with you people. He's not even paying attention to you. You're running around like a lot of dummies and zombies out here, living your life, Tom, Dick, and Harry taking time, chance, and circumstance, bumbling along into every accidental nuance of life that you can imagine, and then suffering the consequences, wondering, where is God when I hurt? You don't need him when you're feeling well, when you got a fat wallet and a full bank account, you feel good and healthy and fulfilled and successful. The second martini for lunch bunch that goes to Hawaii twice a year to play golf doesn't need God. And people in the big corporate Structures of this nation, like the CEOs that are calling down a half million, a million, two, and three, and seven million, like some of them over the big automotive industries, they don't have time for God, they don't need Him. But when they get sick, when they're missing half a heart and one lung, and maybe got a goat stomach, then they need God. They're in the hospital. Where's God when it hurts? Sure, they need God then. But they don't need Him when times are good. So, Jesus is showing these people that they don't live in God's country that God's eyes are not upon them, that God is not working among them, and he's not working with them or through them. God doesn't even know them. You begin to get a glimpse of what you're dealing with in this passage, of what took place in that synagogue nearly 2,000 years ago when Jesus Christ said what he did to his own hometown folks, and they wanted to kill him. How far do you think I'd get with a bunch of Methodists saying to them what Christ said to this synagogue full of people? Just about the same distance he did. They would hate me. They would want to kill me if I told them God is not working in this church. You talk about angry. Now maybe you can begin to get the picture. See, I'm not going to do that because I don't want to get myself killed before it's too late. I mean, I, whatever time God has in mind for me, whatever's supposed to happen to me, then it's supposed to happen at that time. But there's no reason for me to go out and look for it, precipitate it. And I'm not going to go crashing through any Methodist doors and say, hold it, i got something to tell you today. <laughs> Even if they would let me speak for more than ten minutes. Where I live in a retirement community, they invited me down to a kind of a breakaway church. There's a community church there, but a bunch of them didn't like what the pastor was saying, so they broke away and they have a regular Sunday meeting in the lounge room or the actually the dining room of our clubhouse down there at Emerald Bay. And one of their number invited me to preach one time when their minister was out of town or sick or something, and I did, and I made the mistake of going through the eighth chapter of the book of Romans, expounded every word of it, and told them what I was going to cover was something fairly simple, which is the whole plan of God. The purpose for human life. You can be born of God. Christ is the firstborn among many brethren. And I explained that we are heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, and preached the gospel, repentance of sin, Baptism, the receiving of God's Holy Spirit, the new creature in Christ, ultimately being changed by the return of Christ or resurrected at that same time if we are in Christ. And they never invited me back. That was the last time I ever got invited to speak to those people. And I said nothing but the most beautiful words. And I preached it directly out of the Word of God. And I realize now what my error was. If I'd have said, today I want to talk to you about faith. Faith is the evidence of things not seen. It is a belief in something that you can't really see. Do you believe in something that you can see? Well, of course you do. But do you believe in something you cannot see? Well, of course you believe in air, don't you? Could have gone on like that. 
You believe in electricity, you can see what it does, but you can't see it. I could have entertained them, I could have been eloquent, I could have been invited back. But dumb, stupid Garner Ted, I had to open the Bible and open my mouth and preach out of the book of Romans, the 8th chapter, and I never got invited back. I imagine if I tried that, going in and saying to people what Jesus is obviously saying here to his own synagogue, I could get myself assaulted and even worse than not invited back. God's Word says many things about whether or not God is in some kind of a struggle between the devil and himself in trying to get the world saved. And that's what everybody seems to believe. Now, you just stop to think about it for a minute. What has the devil got going for him? All of society, right? All of entertainment, all of Hollywood, MTV, and the cables, and most of the local system. The only thing God's got going for him is going to be on the air tomorrow morning, right? Now, he's got all these religious organizations, like people like to think ecumenical thoughts. They like to think that by good men, all together, everywhere, working together, eventually the kingdom of God will be established in the hearts of men. How are we doing, folks? What kind of progress are we making? How far have we come from that day when Cain first slew Abel to the more than 65 wars that have erupted between usually members of the disunited non-nations from the time of the formation of their charter back in 1945? to the time when now America is saying we want our young men to go march at the whims of Boutros, <clears throat> Boutros, I don't know why they say his name twice, Gali, the head of the United Nations, and this ineffective, ridiculous organization that has been freeloading on East uh, River overlooking New York, and the United States has paid for the bills all this period of time, has never stopped a war once it got started, short of the desire of the participants to do so, has never prevented a war, and sends young men all the way from Norway, Sweden, Belgium, England, Italy, the United States, or wherever, over between combatants, and lets them get shot at, and sometimes murdered, and blown up by landmines, and killed, but they can't shoot back. And they have no teeth, and they can't enforce their will. How far has the world come in its quest for world peace? Where are we right now today? How many of you know about the more than two million human beings who perished during the days of Pol Pot and the Khmer Rouge in Cambodia, when the only article I ever even noticed was a little one that appeared in Reader's Digest that talked about straggling refugees coming over into the border of Laos with their actual feet being cut from stepping on sharp bones in the trail where the moldering bodies of people were lying after the Khmer Rouge had killed them. There were demonstrations by the queers, and I love to use that word, and I won't apologize for it, and the simpering, mince-in gays, so-called, and there's nothing gay about them, nothing happy about a gay or a sodomite, and the lesbians and all others, oh, they were marching, they were sitting on the mall or mincing up the steps at the White House. They want their way. They want to have themselves looked upon as just another minority, like Cherokee Indians or anybody else in the United States, and have equal rights. They want to come down the aisle, Steve and Adam, and uh, get married. One of these days, according to our Supreme Court, some man is going to lead a horse down the aisle and say, we want to get married. And the Supreme Court will probably say, well, that sounds okay to us. After all, horses have rights. If kangaroo rats have rights, horses have rights. So I'm merely asking the question, how are we doing with all these guys on Sunday morning evangelism? What are they really after? Are they trying to convert the people over in Phnom Penh? Are they trying to stop what's happening in Rwanda? 
Are they bringing world peace? Are good men working together in ecumenical goodwill in the spirit of Jesus gradually bringing world peace? Is the kingdom already here today like Pat Robertson says it is? If it is, where is it? Where is it? In the hospitals? Is it in the schools with the kids that are carrying guns in there? It is, in the, is it in the airports? Is it out here in... Where is the kingdom of God? Is it in the House of Representatives? Is it, is it in Chicago, Bedford-Stuyvesant, New York, Brooklyn, Queens, Bronx, Los Angeles? Where is the kingdom of God? Well, people would say it's in the churches. Well, how effective are the churches in bringing world peace? How effective are the churches, even as a voting block, remember that one of their number once ran for president and was resoundingly rejected, one of the biggest embarrassments in the history of any presidential campaign I've ever heard of. I think he might have possibly carried two states, and there's no reason to mention his name, you all know that. But just where is this kingdom of God that this gentleman says is already here, and all we have to do is just sort of set our minds and set our hearts, and we just sort of enter? Oh, okay. Well, isn't that, doesn't that give you goosebumps? You can just kind of enter. Well, the Bible tells me in Revelation 2, verse 26, that Jesus Christ said in his own words, To him that overcometh will I give power over the nations, and he shall rule them, not with a bamboo cane with four strikes on his rear end, but with a rod of iron, and they shall be broken to shivers like a potter that finds a vessel that is no good and has already been baked in the oven and it's defective, and he simply whacks it into a thousand pieces and shoves it off his workbench and gets on with the next one. Read that in Revelation 2.26. There is the promise at the end of the Christian life. I will give power over the Israelis, over the Jews, over the Arabs, over the people all over the world. That's what he's saying. He's coming to rule the world. Doesn't say he's going to make you feel good and have a great, good time in church. He's saying he's coming back to rule this world with a rod of iron. You know anybody you'd like to whack one or two good ones with a rod of iron? I'm seeing all the time that some of our judges, a willy-nilly, weak, lily-livered, spineless jellyfish, are letting these criminals go. We've got all kinds of people locked up in jail for 6, 10, 14, and 20 years for smoking a little bit of marijuana. And some of them are in there for having too many of them at one time, maybe reeling around with a handful of them in their pocket, and they're in jail. And there are people that have killed and strangled and raped, including 9- and 11-year-old girls that are out there walking the streets. If you think our judiciary system is exemplary of the kingdom of God is here now, I don't understand where some, what world some of these people live in. I don't know how they can justify that kind of absolute stupidity in the light not only of the plain, clear Word of God, but in the light of what's going on in the world. Now, let me take you to a couple of scriptures people really don't necessarily read in the pulpits of this land very often. In the 15th chapter of the book of Isaiah, he says, verse 7, You hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you. And he's talking now to the religious leaders of his generation, to the Pharisees. The word Pharisee meant separatist or apartist. It meant, I'm better than you are. It meant ivory-towered, cloistered, it meant spiritually superior, and they were a sect of the Jews who were supposed to sit in Moses' seat, as Christ said, so they were practitioners and preachers of the Torah, and of the law, as well as the Talmud, which was their own 
invention of a lot of do's and don'ts. You hypocrites, because they had double standards, well did Isaiah prophesy, there's that Isaiah again, of you saying, quote, this people draws nigh unto me with their mouth, and oh, if you want to hear some mouthings, watch it tomorrow. Christ says, when you pray, enter into your closet and pray in private, that when your Father, who sees you in secret, sees you praying in secret, he will reward you openly. But pray not as the hypocrites do, for they love to appear in public, praying and making fair speeches before human beings, and they have their reward. What's that? Well, that's getting all goose pimply over thinking, I wonder how I'm looking right now. Well, I, oh, oh, you know, heal. Oh, man, that's fun. That's wonderful. And that's the only reward they get, is the way they feel while they're doing that, screwing up their face like an old prune and shaking their hands over a bunch of letters and claiming that they're rebuking the devil and claiming to heal people on television. Absolutely spitting in Christ's face, denying what Christ said, disobedient to Christ, rebellious toward Christ, saying, well, I know you said don't pray in public, Jesus, but I'm going to do it anyway, because it's fun. I love it. So they're going to do it. You'll watch them tomorrow morning. And Christ says, don't do that. Pray in private. Don't make a display of your religiosity. Have it deep inside your heart and mind and get on your private knees in your private closet and talk to your eternal God in heaven above where you can confess your sins without the media getting a hold of it. And then he that sees you in private will reward you openly. Yes, their mouth. They honor with their mouth and honor me with their lips. But their heart is far from me. But in vain. Now, how many Sunday-keeping people go to Sunday-keeping churches, and you can name them by the hundreds, and listen to a sermon based upon this scripture? Think about your religious background and ask yourself, when did you hear a sermon that was constructed around Jesus' words in this scripture? In vain they do worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. So it's possible to, quote, worship, end quote. Jesus Christ, to adore Christ, to love Christ, to talk so wonderfully about Christ, to sing wonderful songs about Christ, to have your bumper sticker that says, honk if you love Jesus, to say you know the Lord and you love the Lord. And if you are adhering to the mores of men, the opinions of men, the sociological structures of men, the way of men, going along the line of least resistance like any other old dead carp floating downstream in the flotsam and jetsam of some kind of a turgid mill race filled with a lot of garbage and offal and orange peels and plastic cans and bottles. It's easy to go downstream, but it's very difficult to swim upstream against the tide. It takes a lively fish to do that. In vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men, the ways of men, the mores of men, the laws of men, the religions of men, the liturgies and the rituals of men. And he said to the multitude, Hear and understand, not that which goes into the mouth defiles a man, but that which comes out of the mouth, that defiles a man. And the Pharisees were offended by this saying, and he said in verse 14, Let them alone, they be blind leaders of the blind, and if the blind shall lead the blind, both shall fall in the ditch. Christ said in Luke 6:46, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? Why is that? In Matthew, the seventh chapter, Jesus said something very similar. 
Verse 21, not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, and oh, they love that term. You don't find an awful lot of people on Sunday morning television talking about Jesus Christ of Nazareth or Jesus Christ. You hear a lot of them talking about the Lord. And many of them just use the term Jesus. Do you know I'm going to tell you something you probably never knew? Not once. Bear me out. Prove it. Prove me wrong if you can. You can't because I'm telling the truth. Not once in three and one half years of close personal association, eating, sleeping, walking, hiking, crying, eating meals together, praying together, did a single disciple of Jesus Christ ever call him Jesus? Did you ever know that before? Did you ever know that before? That's the truth. Not once. They always called him master, leader, teacher, rabbi, rabboni. When he asked Peter, who do you say that I am? After he asked, well, who do men say that I am? They said, well, you're Elijah. So there was a group who believed he was Elijah because a lot of people are that stupid. You say something, people believe it. Some say you're Jeremiah. So there was a Jeremiah group. Some say you're one of the prophets. So there was the Isaiah group and probably the, the Daniel group. That's who he is. Oh, you hear who he is? That's, that's Daniel. So people believed it. Well, who do you say that I am? Thou art the Christ, the Son of God. He didn't say, you're Jesus. Not, not once did they ever use that familiar term. Is there something to this business of taking the name of the Lord in vain that is being absolutely ignored in our society by people who like to profess religion, who are bandying about the names and titles of God and not having the true understanding of God's word, nor being obedient to God's word, they do not receive the answer, the dramatic answer, the miraculous answer to the prayers that they're trying to send up, which never go beyond the ceiling. Because if it's not coupled with obedience and with faith, then you're not going to get an answer because you're not on God's wavelength. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say unto me in that day. Now, what is this category of people? Who are these people and what do they do? What is their bent in life? What is their profession? Lord, Lord. Well, now, we're not talking here basically about uh, pharaoh dealers or uh, crap dealers or uh, we're not talking here about sideshow barkers or prostitutes, are we, or drug dealers? We're talking about people who would say, Lord, Lord, and who are they? What do they look like? What do they sound like? What kind of clothing do they wear? When do they hold forth? Where do you find them? Have we not prophesied in thy name? Who does that? The Senate? No. Religious guys. Holy Joes. Sky pilots. Religious guys. They're the ones, and their wives sometimes, who prophesy in his name. And in your name have cast out devils. They have excoriated and exorcised, allegedly, demons. You see them walking up and whacking somebody, and they're there to fall and fall over like a poker. And they go, you know, they're just having the biggest, oh, ha, 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 so much fun. I like to take a guy like that with me to the hospital and take him through a paraplegic ward, take him down to the VA, take him to some of the nursing home. Okay, go at it, boy. Let me see you get him out of here. One after another. Don't have all the people coming up to you in a meeting like that that can make the goiter disappear automatically. And I'm not saying that there wouldn't be a rare occasion where a person 
who has faith in God as they know God, so let me issue a little disclaimer so you don't misunderstand, and who don't know that they're walking up in front of a charlatan, a fake, and a fraud, and who actually look to him as a man of God, might not receive an answer to prayer, and a dramatic one. I think that's possible that that could happen on a rare occasion. I really do. I can't verify that because I've never talked to those people. But it would be interesting to have reporters, investigative reporters, follow on after some of those people carried out Stiff's board and find out a month later what happened. What exactly did you feel when you passed out? What were you thinking at that moment? What happened when you woke up? How do you feel today? Etc. Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, and in your name cast out devils, demons, and in your name have done many wonderful works? Bridgeback houses for drug addicts, homes for unwed mothers, soup kitchens, relief for flood victims and earthquake victims. Haven't we done many wonderful works, established nursing homes and boys' clubs and taken in waifs and orphans? Haven't we done many wonderful works? Then, Jesus Christ of Nazareth. How can he say these things? Is this the Christ of the churches of this world? Would he dare say these things? He will say, I never knew you. Get out of here. Go away from me. Depart from me. You who work iniquity. You break God's laws. Iniquity means lawlessness. It means the breaking of God's laws. Jesus Christ of Nazareth came, it is true, to die for the sins of all of mankind. But he did not come to save the world then. He has not tried to save it in 619 or 1146 or 1262 or 1349 or during the Industrial Revolution in the 17th and 18th centuries, he didn't try to save the world during World War I. He didn't try to save the world during World War II, and more than 30 million people died in Russia alone. More than 70 million human beings perished in that terrible conflagration that reached to every nook and cranny and corner of this globe. He is not trying to save the world, believe it or not, today. How come God doesn't have guys like Peter Jennings and Sam Donaldson? How come God has all those other guys? Isn't that a puzzle to you sometimes when you listen to them and their wives? Maybe they're pretty good on the banjo. Uh, I can't, I, I'm sorry, I can't handle that. I've read too much about Elijah. I've read too much about Ezekiel. I've read too much about the patriarchs and the prophets of old. I've read too much about my Savior, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, and the way he called things exactly what they were. And when people came running up to him with all their vanity hanging out, he told them exactly what it was. Vanity. And he cut right through all of the niceties and all of the little diplomatic and etiquette uh, ideas that were espoused by people and just got right down to the heart of the matter. I will profess unto them, I never knew who you are. Depart from me, you that work iniquity. Jesus Christ of Nazareth came to pay the penalty for sin. What is sin? 1 John 3, 4, a lot of you have that memorized. Sin is the transgression of the law. That is the only scripture from Genesis to Revelation where you can turn to a Bible scripture that says sin is and then tells you what it is. There are all kinds of scriptures that talk about things you shouldn't do. 
stealing, lying, cheating, even in the Ten Commandments, in the fourth chapter of the book of Ephesians, for example. In Colossians 3 is another example. All through Paul's letters is another example, especially in 1 Corinthians, where he talks about things like incest and getting drunk and let him that stole steal no more, etc. But the one Bible scripture that says what sin is, is 1 John 3, 4. Sin is the transgression of something the Bible calls the law. What is that? That's the Ten Commandments of God. At the very beginning of the Bible, we read about the men of Sodom were sinners, Genesis 13, 13, above all other men. They were rotten, filthy, perverts, perverts that brought about, eventually, through all of that kind of activity, a disease known as AIDS. It's taken all this period of time for it to gradually generate through the incredible versatility and hardiness of certain strains of virus and, and bacteria. At the very end of the Bible... In the 22nd chapter of the book of Revelation, we read that there are those who are the keepers of God's commandments who have a right to the tree of life. From Genesis to Revelation, God's Ten Commandments are enjoined upon people to keep them and to observe them. My wife and I, when we were coming up here, walked by a man who was handing out a lot of cheap religious tracts in the Dallas-Fort Worth airport. He was standing in front of a big placard that had all the Ten Commandments on it. I had to bite my tongue. It was all I could do to turn around and grab him and say, See this fourth one here? Do you keep that one? I just didn't have the time, or I would have had a real good time doing that. But I don't like to get into religious arguments. That would have embarrassed the poor man. And he would have had his arguments. He would have had his excuses already. Well, yes, but on Sunday. I think we ought to keep one out of seven. He would have all the arguments. Blessed, verse 14, Revelation 22, are they that do his commandments. Who is speaking? Christ. What's the word his mean? God the Father. How do they get around many of the scriptures in 1 John which say that we ought to keep his Ten Commandments? Well, because God has allowed the Bible to be written in such a way that they may, quote, be snared and taken and fall away backward, quote, that they seeing should see not and hearing should hear not, neither should they understand, lest at any time they should hear with their ears and see with their eyes and turn and be converted and I should heal them. Can you imagine Jesus Christ uttering words like that? I speak unto them in parables, lest they should turn and be converted and I should heal them. Why? It wasn't God's time. You call someone too soon, and you're only left with one choice. You've got to destroy him. Jesus Christ said, the last shall be first. The Bible shows a time of the great intervention of Almighty God by signs that are going to stop human hearts and boggle their minds. People are literally going, it says, to die of heart attacks for the things they see coming upon this earth. There is going to come a time when God, through heavenly intervention, described in the seventh chapter of the book of Revelation, is going to halt all human activity when there are nuclear bomb conflagrations and wars going on all over this world. And he is going to halt it at the very end of the Great Tribulation, which is the time of Satan's wrath and a time of the destruction of many great races of people and pogroms and the loss of life like we've never seen before. And he's going to halt all of that, that activity by divinely revealed heavenly signs. The moon is going to look like it is sackcloth of ashes or blood. It's going to be as black as pitch dark at midnight in the middle of the noon. He's going to turn the moon into blood, and the sun is going to be black 
and people are going to fall to their knees and begin calling out to God. They are going to do so because they heard a message, but they didn't heed it. They didn't really believe it, and they didn't follow on. They got all of their array like an early warning radar network, and oh, it is so effective of all their excuses, their background. Well, how come he can be right? I've been down that road. I know every rut and nook and cranny in it. I know every escape hatch. I know every bifurcation. I know every detour in the road that takes you down. The reasoning says, well, I know, but when I get back outside, the sun's still going to be shining out here, and I can go, there's going to be Methodist Church, Baptist Church, Lutheran Church, Catholic Church. Surely all these people can't be wrong. What about the Pope in Rome? What about Billy Graham? What about the, the glass crystal cathedral? What about good old Oral? What about his son Richard? What about all these people? Surely... This one man can't be right, and all these other folks wrong, and here are all these excuses. But God's Word tells me in the book of Ezekiel that people will talk, and they'll say, Well, he's certainly a good speaker, and I'd love to go to hear him. And they will hear with their ears, but they will not do what you say. But surely, when these things come to pass, they shall know that a prophet has been among them. I look upon the fruits of this work and the ultimate benefit, the ultimate produce, the ultimate harvest from all of the years of labor and effort of God's work of witness and warning and preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God as being latent fruits of seeds in the ground that are eventually going to sprout only when God waters it and causes it to do so and to flourish. And at the time of the beginning of the Great Tribulation, I believe there are going to be literally hundreds of thousands of people who will remember, who will say, well, I heard that something like this was going to happen to our beautiful country, and I just couldn't accept it. I couldn't believe it. But it's happening, and I better do something about it right now. Maybe it's because God is merciful that he doesn't call some people too quick. I remember one time many years ago in Temple City that I tried to flush a gopher out of my yard. I've never forgotten it. It reminded me of many, many people who stumble over the truth and pick themselves up and hurry along as if nothing had happened. I finally had enough water in those holes that that gopher came out of there blinking his eyes, and I had a little trowel waiting for him, and ding on his head. And he was trying his best to get back in the ground, but the ground was full of water. And I've always thought it just like people emerging from the sea of Babylonish mystery religion and confusion and religious uh, doubt and confusion and deception, and blinking their eyes in the brilliant light of the sun of God's truth, and just saying, not me, I want to burrow right back down in there. I don't want to look at that. That sounds pretty dramatic to me. I don't want to go headlong against a Sunday-keeping world. I don't want to have my kids trotting down to the principal to say they need time off on a holy day on a Thursday, because they claim it's some holy day or other. I don't want my kids just barely after getting started in school in the autumn to say they've got to take ten days off to go to something called the Feast of Tabernacles. What in the world is that? What are you, a bunch of Jews, a bunch of kikes? What are you people keeping the Feast of Tabernacles? Mercy. Well, I can show you, as I said on television in the 15th chapter of the book of Revelation, the description of the saints. This is not some little group of the saints. It's all the saints. Now, I've asked people on television time and again, and you focus in on it right quickly. I saw, as it were, chapter 15, verse 2, a sea of glass. That's a translucent, vitreous-looking platform in front of the very throne of God, mingled with fire, sparkling like diamonds, emeralds, and rubies. And them that had gotten the victory over the beast, and over his image, and over his mark, 
and over the number of his name, which is 666, standing on the sea of glass, having the harps, the harps of God, and they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are thy works, Lord God Almighty, just and true are thy ways, thou King of saints. These are the saints. This is the saved. Who do you think they are? What church do they go to? You like to convince yourself, yourself that they're in all the churches? You like to convince yourself, oh, these are Baptists and Greek Orthodox. These are Christian Coptics. These are Maronite Christians from over in Lebanon. These are, these are Arabs. These are Jews. These are Shinto and Buddhists. And these are Shiites and Sunnis from the Muslim world. Some people are so ecumenical, they're like that river. It got so broad that it spread out over about 100 miles and was so shallow you could walk across. They're real shallow. They get so broad-minded they become extremely shallow in their thinking. No, that's ridiculous. Almighty God requires obedience to his law. When was the last time you as a Methodist or as a Baptist or Episcopalian or Lutheran or former Roman Catholic struggled with or against something called the beast? When was the last time you as a person earning a living or being a housewife or a child in school struggled with something called the image of the beast? When was the last time you had to struggle and really persevere, and it was really a, a terrible fight that you had on your hands, to overcome the mark of the beast? Now, what is the mark of God? What is the sign of God? What is the identifying symbol that God placed upon his people anciently? If you will turn to Exodus 31, I'll try to hurry now because I know I'm keeping you a little long. Just a couple of points to make quickly here. Exodus, the 31st chapter. Almighty God very clearly showed that there was one great perennial sign that he left between himself and his people. Speak thou to the children of Israel, saying, verse 13, Verily, my Sabbaths, plural, not just Sabbath, singular, Sabbaths, plural, shall ye keep. Read Exodus 16 and 18. Prior to the giving of the Decalogue, face it, look at it, read it, study it, acknowledge it, believe it. Before the giving of the Decalogue, God exercised his prerogative of the death penalty and put to death rebellious Israelites who would not keep his Sabbath day. The Sabbath day was not inaugurated at Sinai. The Sabbath day was inaugurated at creation. And the first two chapters of Genesis show that God rested on that day and put his presence in it and calls it holy unto the eternal. It is contemptuous under the Roman Catholic and the Protestant Sunday-keeping world. It's, it's hated. It's rejected, it's, re it's rebelled against, it's ignored. And Christ loves it. He is its Lord. Mark 2, 26 and 27. He is Lord also of the Sabbath day. He said, I have kept my Father's commandments. The Bible said that he set us an example that we should follow in his steps. Who is the God who created and rested on the seventh day? The first chapter of the book of, of uh, John and the first chapter of Hebrews. John says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And by Him was everything made that was made, and without Him was not anything that was made, created or brought into being. 
He came into his own, and his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them gave he the power to become the children of God. And it said, our hands have looked, our eyes have looked upon him, and our hands have handled him. And it's clearly talking about Jesus Christ, but it's saying that he had a pre-existence with the Father, that he was the divine executive member called the Logos, or spokesman, or executive, who gave the commands, let there be light, let the dry land appear, let the sea bring forth its great creatures, who made Adam and breathed the breath of life into his nostrils and said, hello there, you are red mud, red clay, Adam. That is the one who came to this earth and died for it, because it's only because his one life, which is the Creator's life, that is worth more than all the rest of us put together, could be an adequate sacrifice for humanity. And so Jesus Christ died for his own creation to redeem it because he loves us, because we are his, his handiwork, we're his, his progeny, we're the prototypes of a kingdom which is a divine family grown great into a great kingdom called the kingdom of God. So, he says, the only sign, the Sabbath, shall you keep. It is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I am the eternal does sanctify you. You shall keep the Sabbath, therefore. Was this the Jews? No. They were only one tribe out of thirteen when you look at the two half-tribes of Joseph. It was Ephraimites and Gadites and the people of Asher and Reuben and Zebulun and Dan, the people of Ephraim and Manasseh and Benjamin and Issachar. It was all those other people. The Jews of Judah, or the Yehudis, who are called Jew in the vernacular today as a nickname, were not given the Sabbath. All of mankind was given the Sabbath. There were no Jews when God created the Sabbath. There was only Adam and Eve the next, or that first day before the Sabbath, on the Friday. No Jew came along until far more than one-sixth of the history of the human race after that time. Who makes you think the Sabbath is, what makes you think the Sabbath is Jewish? when Almighty God created it for all mankind. And Christ himself said the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. What is the biggest obstacle to you? It's not Garner Ted Armstrong because you can go your way and say, well, poo on him. And I won't even know it. It won't bother me. It won't change my salary. It won't change my relationship with my children and grandchildren. My wife and I won't even know about it. You can go out of here and say, what a dumb clod he was. Well, no, he's sure full of the business, you know. Sound like a bunch of pinto beans to me. It wouldn't bother me at all. Do you know that you can have your ideas? You can have your treasured opinions and your biases. You can think and you can talk. You can beat your gums. You can caterwaul. You can argue. You can disagree. And guess what? The old world's out there, and it's just rolling around. And the moon is exerting the pressure on the tides. And the peoples are running all around right now, just frantic, because Paris scares you half to death if you're in traffic in a cab over there. And they're in Rome right now, and 8,000 miles through from us, are people that think they're right side up. And the world's going to go on. You know what the world thinks about your opinions? Nothing. Doesn't change anything. Only inside of you. The only effect it makes is what's going on inside that brain between you and your God that gives you every breath of air you breathe. It doesn't affect anything or anybody else. Now, I'm going to finish by proposing a, a revolutionary idea to you. I'm going to propose to you that you are sitting in this room today, in this hotel near the Tulsa airport. As a result, of a series of circumstances that are known in heaven above. 
that there are 24 elders sitting up there who know about it, that there are seraphim and cherubim who know about it, that Jesus Christ of Nazareth, at the right hand of God the Father on high, knows about this event, that his eyes are upon it, and that he knows you better than you know yourself. He knows you deeply and inwardly. He knows your background. He knows your wants, your desires, your hopes, your dreams. He knows your frustrations. He knows your pain. He knows your anxiety. He knows what you believe. He knows, as God's Word says, your down-sitting and your uprising. When you sit down or you get up and walk, He knows where you live. I propose to you that Almighty God in heaven above knows you by your first name. I dare to propose unto you that Almighty God said in heaven above at some time, I want you. Male, female, youngster. And decided to work some circumstances to bring you to hear his word. And he is saying up there, I wonder what this one individual is going to do with his or her opportunity. Now, don't sell yourself short. Don't deny what I just told you. You may as well deny the next breath you draw. You may as well deny the digestive tract of a mosquito. You may as well deny the way a spoonbill gets vortices to whip up little microorganisms off the ocean floor. You may as well deny that dolphins breathe through an air hole. You may as well deny the rotation of the earth. To deny your existence and to deny that Almighty God knows about it and that he has a purpose and a program and a plan that involves you personally, why sell yourself short? You are a vital, precious, once only, never again to be. There will never be another you. You are you. You're the only one there is. And you've got one window of opportunity. You've got one chance to live forever. Now, why in the world would you erect a lot of arguments and excuses because... You want to blend back in like that little gopher trying to go right back down in a dirty hole in my front yard and disappear from the bright light of the shining of the sun of God's truth into your heart and mind. I don't want to come up here and be away, and I'm not trying to get your sympathy. I'm just saying, I know I'm doing what I'm supposed to do, but I'm just putting it in that sense so you don't understand what I'm saying. You notice that we didn't take up a collection, don't you? We don't do that. You notice that table full of literature that is absolutely free of charge? Let me also tell you, any of you that held up your hand that I'm meeting for the first time, people who may not even be on our mailing list, people who have received some literature but not very much, people who still wonder about Luke 16, the Lazarus and the rich man, yeah, but what about that? We have a ton of literature, and not a bit of it is coercive. Not a bit of it is trying to pull the wool over anybody's eyes. We urge you to get out your Bible, open it up, look at each scripture that is referred to, check it and find out if it's true. And if you have any particular problems, any questions in any remote area of your life, private, personal, spiritual, philosophical, political, moral, whatever, please let us know. Give us an opportunity to fill that void, study it, Look at it, and then if you decide it's not right, I don't believe it, fine. Go your way and take whatever lies in the future, 
But don't sell yourself short. Don't miss an opportunity because it costs you nothing. The literature's free. The tapes are free. And if there are any questions at all that I've touched upon, you say, well, that doesn't sound quite right to me today. What about the Sabbath? Some of you may not be observing it. Some of you may still work most of the time on this day. And you don't know that Almighty God says that breaking the Sabbath is absolutely the same as murder. It's absolutely the same as taking God's name in vain, coveting, whatever. It's on a par. It's one of the Ten Commandments. If you want to go back and look at some of the greatest research on that subject, get Samuele Bacchiocchi's book from Saturday to Sunday and look at the original papal encyclicals and bulls. That's a good name for it. And all the stuff that came out back during the history of the Roman Catholic Church, especially the, the uh, Council of Nicaea in 325 A.D., which was ostensibly called by Constantine for the purpose of dealing with the Athanasian Creed when the Trinity Doctrine was put in place in what was then an apostate church more than uh, 290 years after the time of Christ. And to see how all this got started. Who changed it? Who had the authority to change it? No man had the authority to change what you've read in God's Word as God's holy Sabbath day that depicts the coming millennial reign of Christ and looks back to the creation of the fact that God created all of life. I hope that God blesses you in your thought. I hope that He blesses your life. I hope that this has been an experience that will bless your life and do some good and help you to get started on realizing the real purpose for you drawing breath and become a child of God. God bless you. Thanks for coming. Thank you.